This is Your Working Life, a podcast that provides you with tools, inspiration, and resources so you can enjoy your career and love your life. I'm Caroline Dowd Higgins. I'm a speaker and a career and executive coach. And today, I welcome back Guy Kawasaki to the show. Guy, welcome back. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me back. I appreciate the opportunity. You know, the last time we spoke, we were talking about your then new book, The Art of Social Media. And I have to tell you, that was my social media Bible for such a long time. And I'm so grateful for that wisdom. But today we're going to talk about your new book called Wise Guy, Lessons from a Life. And I have to say, I love this book. Well, thank you. Tell me a little bit about what inspired you to write this. You know, one of the the taglines that you share is, think of it as miso soup for the soul. So tell me what inspired you. Well, uh, can I tell you a famous Tom Clancy story? Please. Well, Tom Clancy was at a press conference for his latest book. And a reporter asked Tom Clancy, what's your book about? And Tom Clancy said, it's about 20 bucks. (laughs) And so... The reason why I tell you this story is that if you ask an author that question and he or she is truthful, you know, why did you write this book? The honest answer is royalty. But <laughs> you you can't say that. So it, it's kind of like a beauty pageant, you know, where you have that five-minute section where you have a personal statement and it's always about world peace right. and climate control and, you know, all that. Um, so I'm 64 years old. I've had a very, uh, let's say, interesting life. Now, not so interesting that people would make a movie about this, you know, how I overcame abuse, drug addiction, you know, uh, abject poverty, coming to the United States with nothing more than a, you know, T-shirt on my back. So I don't have a a made-for-movie life. But I have had a very interesting life in technology, and I learned a lot of lessons. And so... I'm in this sweet spot at 64 where I've gained all the knowledge, but I have not yet forgotten it yet. So if I waited any longer, I might forget the knowledge. (laughs) If I wrote it any sooner, I wouldn't have the knowledge. So this is the sweet spot. So so I wrote the book to capture the knowledge so that people could have a, you know, more enchanting, successful, productive life based on some very interesting stories of my life. Well, it is interesting. And I have to tell you, so many people know you. You really are a global brand, right? From your (laughs) evangelist role at Canva to the work that you've done for Apple and certainly all the things in between, right? You're a household name. But what I love about this book is you really gave us some very personal and poignant insight about your life that I bet people beyond your inner circle didn't know. And I'm, I'm grateful for that vulnerability. Well, I, I think you're exaggerating, you know, what vulnerability I displayed. Uh, you know, it's not like I fall on my sword and tell you my deepest, darkest secrets, mostly because I don't really have many deep and dark secrets just because I'm a boring person. But the, that aside, um, uh, Yeah, you know, I I try to tell it like it is. I'm a WYSIWYG kind of guy. (laughs) Well, let's go through a few things because I want to whet the appetites of this global audience and encourage them to check out your book. So you really believe in the principle of paying it forward. And 
for the audience, they may not know that you have a lot of uncompensated support for brands that have helped you build relationships that have led to your success, as well as the success pardon me, the success of companies, Mercedes-Benz being one of them. So tell us your take on paying it forward and why it matters. Yeah, so I, I theoretically, well, let me start all over. I believe there's a karmic scoreboard in the sky. And this karmic scoreboard, you know, because sort of tracks what you do good and what you do bad. And I also believe that uh, the, the world is a place of a rising tide as opposed to a falling tide. So with a rising tide, guess what? All the boats float higher, right? A rising tide is good for all the boats. And so I believe that. And so I try to help people and default to yes. Now, obviously, I do say no sometimes, but I try to default to yes because I just think that I want to rack up points on the karmic scoreboard. And uh, now, if you're skeptical about the existence of a karmic scoreboard, I, I can understand that. But, you know, let's just say I'm right. I mean, why take a chance? <laughs> so <laughs> it's completely rational to assume that there's a karmic scoreboard um, and, you know, try to ensure that you're in the positive side. Hey, I'm with you. The karmic circle of life is is a real thing. You know, I have to share right off the bat, we share a dear friend whom you've known longer than I have, but I was just tickled when I was reading the chapter that includes Marilyn Delborg Delfis and I learned a little bit more about your relationship and you, again, you were very candid about um, quitting Apple. So I would love for you to give a little context to that to the audience so they can understand that. Well, I actually quit Apple twice. Um, the first time I left Apple, it was because, well, there's two versions of this story. So one story is I just fell in love with the opportunity to create Macintosh software. So it was, uh, you know, grass is greener story. Uh, the other flip side of this story was that uh, Apple, six months earlier, had turned me down for a promotion. And they turned me down for this promotion and I was software evangelist and you know software product marketing manager at the time. So my job was to work with third-party software companies. And in that review, I went in and the person I worked for told me, well, the little developers, the innovative ones, the tiny ones, the startup ones, they really love you. You know, they love you, guy. Check that box off. But the big ones like Lotus, Ash and Tate and Microsoft, they don't like you. And I was thinking, well, that's how we should be because Ashton Tate was creating something that wasn't up to Macintosh standards and Microsoft was copying our user interface. And, and Lotus had, you know, created something that also wasn't up to our standards uh, called Jazz. And so I thought, oh, so I, I threaded the needle. The, lot, the small guys who uh, we love and, and they love us, they like me. And the big guys who are threatening us are not exactly, you know, living up to what they should be doing for us. They don't like me. Life is good. And the review proceeds on. He says, well, you know, for the reason that these three big developers don't like you, I'm not promoting you. <laughs> and I said, you know, the world is not, the, 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 the axis of the world just tilted a little bit. And so I was so upset that I was just going to quit there on the spot. But uh, someone named Jean-Louis Gasset convinced me to wait for the next review where he was going to be my boss and he would make me a director. 
And he said, it's always good for your resume to leave Apple at a high level, like a director level. So the, the, back then at Apple, it was manager, director, vice president. And so uh, he said, you know, you should leave as a director. So six months went by. He promoted me to a director. And the next day I resigned. Wow. Wow. <laughs> you know, the, the lens of this show, guy is people that are interested in enhancing their career, whether they're wanting to ramp it up in a current role or flex some entrepreneurial muscles or maybe look for a new venture. And you wrote something so beautiful in the book talking about how it's important to add value to people's lives. And you even said, think like NPR, you know, create high value content. So how might you condense that from your life experience? How did you figure out how to add value? Well, uh, it, it seems to me that as you look, uh, the companies that are truly successful aren't truly successful because of, you know, sheer dumb luck. Uh it's because they somehow added value to people's lives. So, you know, we're in a very interesting time where, you know, everybody's crapping on every company, right? But, uh, you know, has Google made the world a better place? Absolutely. You know, now people can access information all over the world at any time with an internet connection. Has Apple made the world a better place? Well, it democratized computing. I work for Canva, and Canva has democratized design. So these companies add value, and they're successful. Now, I wish I could tell you that if you don't add value or you do something bad, it means you'll fail. You can succeed while doing bad things, and you can succeed without adding value. But I'm talking about the ideal perfect world, right? So you should strive to add value. The NPR model that you ascribe to, the NPR model means that you provide great value in content or Wikipedia. You provide great value. And then guess what? You earn the right to ask for money. So NPR asks for money. Wikipedia asks for money. I was on the Wikipedia board of trustees. Wikipedia asks for money and $90 million flows in. I mean, you know, what other organization can say that? And, and it's because people appreciate what Wikipedia has done. I love the phrase, you earn the right, right, to, to, to earn money, right, or to bring in value. And I think that's important. I think people need to understand that it's something that you earn, you earn the trust, and you have to really understand what your value is. And that's part of being a, a savvy professional, understanding where you are in the marketplace. Yeah. And, you know, for the, uh, the part of your audience that is working for someone or an organization, not an entrepreneur, um, my piece of advice that I learned early in my career is that uh, many people make the miscalculation and they think that to get ahead in life in a larger company, they need to make their boss look bad. So the theory is that you show up your boss, that you're better than your boss, more valuable, more whatever, right? And so the theory is you show up your boss and then you get promoted above him or her. And nothing could be further than the truth. So my career advice to people in this circumstance is your job is to make your boss look good. And the better you make your boss, the more successful your boss, the more successful you'll be. So as you get promoted, you, you draft behind your boss. 
excuse me, I said that wrong. So as your so as your boss gets promoted, you draft behind your boss. So your boss goes from manager to director to vice president to CMO. Guess what? I mean, you're going to be r- rising along with him or her. And at some point, you have such credibility for working for a successful person that you can you know, take a fork in the road, go to another organization, yeah, go to a different part of the company. But... Yeah, nobody likes to deal with people who try to sink their boss. You're absolutely right. I couldn't agree more. Guy, we'll be right back after a quick break. Your working life is powered by your stories. We want to hear more from our listeners about your experiences in the workplace. Tell us what challenges you've overcome or tips you've learned along the way. And even better, if you don't have the answers, let us know what issues you want to learn more about. We want this podcast to serve you in all of your career and life needs. Send me an email at caroline at carolinedoubthiggins.com. So Guy, I learned something really interesting about you, that your namesake is Guy Lombardo. Tell, tell us more about that. That blew me away. It made me smile. I'm also a musician, so it just made me really happy, but I had no idea. Well, first of all, uh, it takes a certain minimum age to realize who Guy Lombardo Very is. Very true. We but, just dated ourselves. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah so Guy Lombardo is a big band leader. Right. Uh, or was a big band leader in Canada. In, Guy Lombardo was a big band leader in Canada. Right. And he was very famous for his uh, New Year's Eve performances. So my father and mother knew Guy and Carmen Lombardo because my father was a musician. And so I was named Guy after Guy Lombardo. And I view that as good news because I could have been named Carmen, which would have been, (laughs) (laughs) let's just say, less attractive. Well, it just doesn't roll off your tongue, does it? Yeah, no, it does not. So, Guy, I want to talk about modern leaders. And you believe, and and I'm with you 100%, that the best leaders really need to have a sense of humility. And Mm -hmm. I love in the book, you give several references. One is about Richard Branson. But if you want to tell that story, that'd be great. But I really want to dig into why humility as as an important quality for a leader. Well, the Richard Branson story is that he and I were in Moscow for a speech or a conference, came into the speaker ready room and asked me if I fly on Virgin. I told him no, because I'm a United Airlines global service level customer. And you know I didn't want to jeopardize that. So when I said that, he got down on his knees and he started polishing my shoes. <laughs> so I thought that, wow, this, you know, here's Sir Richard Branson. He owns his own island, billionaire. You know, Virgin Atlantic, Virgin America, Virgin Bride, Virgin Music, Virgin Telephone, you know, Virgin everything, right? Uh, Night. And he can get on his knees. So I said, well, you know, this is why this guy is so successful. Um, and that's my story of humility. So, you know, you, you just have to do what it takes. I mean. <laughs> you do. You have to do what it takes. So do you fly Virgin now or are you still faithful? Well, that was the day I started flying Virgin America. Okay. Now, Virgin America is part of uh, Alaska now. But, yeah, I, you know, <laughs> I think of it every time. There you go. <laughs> Free market. Absolutely. 
So you you talk about how important it is to be honest and without going down a political rabbit hole, but we easily could, honesty is not happening on our global stage politically. And it just pains me to think about how this is impacting our next generation of younger leaders. So why is honesty so important to you? Well, the at one very basic level, I think it's just easier to go through life being honest because typically there is only one truth, right? And so if you are honest and you tell the truth, you never have to work to keep your story straight. On the other hand, if you tell one story to the House Judiciary Committee, another to the Senate Judiciary Committee, another to the FBI, another to uh, you know your staff, another to Fox, another to Breitbart, and another to CNN. That's a lot of stories to keep straight. And so I think it's just a harder path. True, true. I'm with you 100%. And did you see great leaders throughout your career, yourself included, who really uh, believed in that philosophy? Or did you hear a lot of BS and a lot of lying? I heard a lot of BS and lying. <laughs> I mean, that's the norm. Um, and it's, you know, one of the worst things about today's political atmosphere is, you know, think of the role model, right? And, and um, listen, you, you can differ on about abortion. You can differ about gun control. You can differ about all that kind of stuff. That's okay. But the norm is being set that, you know, the truth is whatever you want to believe. So if you want to believe that uh, MMR causes autism, you believe that. And the flip side of that is you ignore science. And <clears throat> science is not liberal or conservative. Science is science. And so, you know, it either causes autism or it doesn't. And, and <clears throat> either climate change is happening or it isn't. It's not because you're a conservative that global change is not happening. Or if you're a liberal, it is happening. So, so that's my concern, that, that truth, science, facts, they exist without political orientation. I mean, a thermometer is not a political beast. Guy, one of the things that I love about your book is the way you very clearly uh, compartmentalize bits of wisdom at the end of chapters. And one of the bits that really resonated with me was embrace people who want to help you. I see so many self-directed, ambitious people that are really afraid or wary of accepting help from others. And, and you believe that great things happen when people help each other. So tell me more about that. So embracing the people who want to help you is a good thing. You should accept people's help. Now, I would urge you to accept people's help knowing that you should reciprocate, that you, know, you, you sort of create a relationship, but it's not all take, it's give and take. And one of the great benefits of accepting help is you build relationships. And I think a lot of people think, oh, if I accept help, I need to feel guilty. Uh, the person will have power over me, et cetera, et cetera. 
Well, that's a very negative way of looking at life. So I think the way you do it is you accept help, knowing that you should reciprocate. And actually, it's a pleasure to reciprocate. And then you can have closer relationships, as opposed to turning everybody down for their help and never having relationships. How is that optimal? So true. And I like your concept, too, of it's not about paying someone back. It's about honoring them with their um, offer to help. That's a beautiful thing. Mm-hmm. So, Guy, the back of your book has this brilliant picture of you surfing, and yeah. you talk about how you're never too old to learn something new. And I didn't realize that you just started surfing at 62. Huh. So, well, one, tell us about that, but also why it's important to keep learning and trying new things. Well, if you saw me surfing, you'd understand why. <laughs> It's clear that I started at 62 and I'm 64 now. Um, uh, what I, I, first of all, I started surfing because my daughter surfs. I started hockey at 48 because my sons played hockey. So basically I embraced what they liked as opposed to forcing them to embrace what I liked, which is a completely different way of parenting. But anyway, uh, that's not what you're asking about. So what I figured out is that learning is not an event and in men, in And in particular, many people believe that that event ends the day you graduate high school or college. Uh, What I figured out is learning is a process. And I could almost make the case that learning truly begins the day you graduate high school or college. Beautifully put. And it's graduation season, isn't it? So we've got wonderful new opportunities for people to go out in the world and embrace. And to your point, right, some non-traditional age students, right? So people that may have graduated beyond those traditional age. And we have this brilliant multi-generational workforce. And I think we need to flex our muscles to challenge ourselves to do new things throughout our lives. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, uh, I know there's a lot of resistance to hiring older employees. Uh, And I just cannot understand that. Of course, I am an older employee. But for example, you know, I'm 64, almost 65. And the CEO of Canva is a woman who's about 30. So you could make the case I work for a woman who's less than half my age. Uh, I don't think she thinks I'm a dinosaur. And I don't think she's clueless. So, you know, in the world, it's so hard to find good people. Why would you restrict your gene pool? You know, and and I mean this not just about age. So if you are a manager or a CEO or an entrepreneur and you need to build the best team you can, consciously or unconsciously, it makes no sense to say, well, I'm going to build the best team that I can of people about the same age as me, the same race, who went to the same school. You know, that just makes no sense to me. I mean, a good employee, a good worker is so hard to find. You should not care about the person's gender, sexual orientation, religion, you know, age, anything. Because why limit your gene pool? And this was something Steve Jobs you know, embraced in the mid eighties and many of his direct reports were women long before women were at that level. And, uh, he, you know, in Steve jobs, he was kind of blind to a lot of things like your race, religion, and sexual orientation. He could not care less. All he cared about was you were either good or you're crap. That's it. <laughs> you know, it was black or white. Yeah. Yeah. 
And on some level, that gave him incredibly diverse teams, right? Because it was yeah. all about excellence. Yes. I mean, you know, uh, a meritocracy is a good thing. I, I don't, you know, I, what's wrong with a meritocracy? Absolutely. Well, Guy, on that incredible note, I will bring us to a close. And I want to thank you so much for spending time with me today. Let me tell us, tell our audience about your book. It's called Wise Guy, Lessons from a Life. And of course, it's available on Amazon and all major book retailers. And I've just got about 20 more pages to go and then I'm done. But thumbs up for me. It's really compelling. And congratulations. What an exciting time. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity to reach your listenership. And uh, I just hope they can all read my book and learn how to, in the words of Steve Jobs, to dent the universe. Absolutely. Some excellent denting on the horizon. And hey, to all of you listening around the world, if you like the show, do subscribe on iTunes or SoundCloud. And even better, leave us a review because that helps people find us online. And let me know what career-minded issues you want to hear on a future show. You can find me on Twitter at C. Dowd Higgins. And of course, I want to give a shout out to my podcast colleagues, Laura Deck, Executive Director of Publicity and Communications, and Claire McInerney, Executive Producer. Thank you for all the extraordinary work you do to make this show awesome for our audience. I'm Caroline Dowd Higgins. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.